Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. Today, our guest is the historical fiction novelist, Victoria Hislop. Victoria is the international best-selling author of The Island, which sold over 6 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 40 languages. Historical fiction can be notoriously hard to sell, but somehow Victoria's done it. Her other eight novels have also been bestsellers, and her latest book, The Figurine, set in Greece, her 10th book, is already garnering really strong reviews. So how does she do it? How does she make sure her books are page turners? Well, in this conversation with Victoria, we discuss her craft. We talk about how she weaves her love of travel and history into her books. We talk about the realities of research and her process for writing books that engineer conversation. We talk about how she evokes a sense of place, how she absorbs a new environment to write about, and why she begins with a synopsis before she actually starts to write her books. Victoria loves bringing history to life, and it's clear that she loves what she does, and she was very open about her process. It was a joy to chat with her, and so without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Victoria Hislop. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Victoria. It's lovely to be with you and um, thinking about all these different countries that people are in. So that makes it even more exciting. And you yourself, Matt, are not in London. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm I'm in Iceland right now. <laughs> I've got two of you in the UK and me in Iceland. And it's amazing we can do this interview. And we're so happy to have you, Victoria. And so speaking of travel and being in foreign places, so you've become a bit of a celebrity, a household name, really, in Greece. You have your honorary citizenship. You've been on Greece's Dancing with the Stars, which in the UK, that's uh, known as Strictly Come Dancing. So a show like that. We're curious, what's been more difficult, writing a book or learning how to dance in front of millions of viewers on TV? I have to be honest, I think it was dancing, probably because it's a, a very physical and mental challenge, whereas writing is something I have more or less feel I was born to do. You know, I was sort of three or four when I was, you know, first taught how to hold a pencil. Um, but it took me until age 60 to learn how to do any dancing. So definitely dancing. Definitely. <laughs> well, maybe if anyone's curious, you could probably catch clips of Victoria dancing somewhere online. So one of the, the fascinating things about learning another language is, I imagine you have with Greek, is sometimes other languages have phrases or words that we don't really have in English. And I'm curious if there's any favorite words or phrases that you have in Greek. Well, there are a couple and both relate to the whole process of socializing. And one of them, and I think it might even have a Turkish root, actually, is kefi, which means a sort of state of excitement and sociability. And I, by that, I don't mean like a sort of 
drunken teenage boys in the town centre on a Saturday night. It's something really pleasurable, you know, that act of sort of dancing and talking and being with your friends is you achieve a sort of state of kefi. And then oddly enough, connected with that is another word, which I don't think in English we have the equivalent. It doesn't sort of translate, but it's parea, which means the group of friends that you're with. It doesn't mean your gang. It doesn't mean your you know, fellow human beings. It's something, it's just the people that you're with at that particular moment in time who become your, almost your soulmates just for the period that you're together. So those kefi and parea are two words that I've never really successfully found a translation for. Hmm. Parea sounds a little bit like our community here at London Writers' Salon. <laughs> yes, I mean, in a way, yeah. whatever the group is, it's people who feel connected with each other so yeah that's probably absolutely true i love that that's so beautiful and then very soon we're going to be talking about your latest book the figurine but before that we wanted to just touch on your early writing life and your first book and of course your first book we spoke about this uh, a few moments ago the island came out in 2005 was selected by the richard and judy book club which is fantastic and became a number one bestseller in britain i wonder if you can take us back to the period of time when you were writing the island what were you doing What was happening? It was a very unexpected bolt out of the blue for me to find myself writing fiction. It wasn't something I'd ever had any aspirations to do or any ambitions or any idea that I might do it because I was at the time a journalist and I wrote lots of corporate, I did a lot of corporate writing for big companies. So everything I did was very, very based in fact. And the idea of telling a story was something I'd more or less left behind when I was 15 years old, which was the last time that we were obliged to do anything creative in English, you know, before we left it behind just to look at other people's literature, you know, the sort of literature that we all did at sort of A-level, you know, and reading of set texts, but we weren't encouraged to write any of our own stories. So we were on holiday in Crete, um, myself and our two children who were eight and ten at the time. And they weren't reluctant sightseers, but I felt in Crete we'd seen enough of the sort of ancient culture. We'd been to a lot of archaeological sites and you know the kids were sort of running out of patience. And I saw something in the guidebook this little island that had been a leprosy hospital until the late 1950s. And I thought, well, that's not prehistory. That is really very much 20th century story. And, um, you know, we'll all be interested by that. So off we went. And I just, I was expecting somewhere a little bit, not ghoulish, but somewhere a little bit depressing and somewhere that we would walk around and maybe learn about this disease of leprosy, which is what these people had who were all sent to this kind of prison island, effectively. And um, instead of which, when we landed on this little rock, I felt a really extraordinary sense of the positive and courageous lives that they'd lived. I just 
was overwhelmed by emotion about it, which, you know, is quite unusual when you go to a monument of any kind to really get a, a sort of positive emotion. You're Normally it's communicating with your brain, but this seemed to be communicating with my heart, really. And the little place, the little island, it takes no more than an hour to walk the whole circumference. And by the time we'd finished our sort of loop and were waiting for the boat again, I knew I wanted to write something fictional about that place. So it was completely out of the blue, not something that I expected at all. I think, I mean, I'm sort of happy to share with you, it's a very sort of personal thing, really. But I was going through a very sort of emotional phase where I desperately wanted a third child. And any women perhaps listening might, who are a little bit older, might know that feeling when it's about to become impossible. And a lot of my friends have had third children with a big gap between the second and the third because there's this sudden desire before it's too late to create. And I was going through exactly that at the time. And from one minute to the next, I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to create this story. So this huge surge of sort of need in me all came out in this novel. So I was very, you know, happily distracted by telling that story, you know, for the three years it took me to write. But I think, you know, that's just happened to be at that right moment that I was quite emotionally open and something grabbed me and just swept me away. Thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting to hear yeah, how, where you were at that point in life. And obviously you went, you've gone on to create so much and you continue to do so. I'm curious, you wrote that book in three, maybe three years, you say? Yes. And what was the process for you to find an agent? That wasn't very easy because the story that I was putting together was about a disease, not just any ordinary disease, but a disease that a great deal of stigma is attached to. It's a disease unlike any other. It's not like TB or, you know, cancer or, you know, any of the diseases that we all kind of fear and know about. For millennia, people believe that leprosy was a curse from God. And that sort of stuck, even though many people aren't religious and almost everyone who, you know, has got any grip of science knows that leprosy is a nowadays a curable disease that's treatable with antibiotics. It's basically a bacterial infection. So, you know, it's quite a prosaic illness in a sense, but that biblical reputation of leprosy being something that you were given because you've done something wrong still attaches itself to leprosy patients. And of course, in addition to that, the fact that many people are very physically disfigured by it. So there's a sort of sense that, you know, that it is a curse. So all of that, amazingly, was in the mind or in the ether when I sent my idea for the novel around. And the response from 
several agents and in fact then publishers was well we like the idea of a love story on a Greek island because this was not long after the novel Captain Corelli's Mandolin by Louis de Bernier which had been a huge success so everyone was like in the mood for another Greek island maybe historically based and with a romance in it so you know I had the romance but unfortunately, at the beginning, when I was trying to sell it, I also had leprosy. So it wasn't very easy. But eventually, as you know, happy accidents do occur, the manuscript fell on the desk of an agent who, I mean, obviously, I think he was a very intelligent guy because he took me on, but he sort of got the point of it and he could see its potential. And then Again, he had quite a difficult job selling it to a publisher for all the same reasons to do with, oh, leprosy, not very commercial. When it really wasn't considered a commercial idea. And it happened to land, again, after being rejected by, gosh, seven, eight, maybe nine big publishers, the synopsis and the first chapter, which is what I did at the beginning, landed on the desk of a very young editor who had spent a lot of her childhood in Africa, where her father was a doctor of tropical diseases, which of course includes leprosy. So she had a sort of dim recollection of the days on which her father went specifically to the leprosy hospital. And of course, she that he came back and that he was treating these people and that these people were being cured. So her knowledge was probably 100 times bigger than many of the other people hadn't liked the look of it. So thanks to Flora and her father, you know, <laughs> Professor Lucas, she commissioned the novel. Amazing. I'm curious, were there any points, the three years writing it, or when the book wasn't getting picked up by an agent or a publisher, was there any point that you considered just letting it go and maybe maybe this isn't meant to be? Yeah. Funnily enough, and this, this isn't meant to sound arrogant in any way, but no, there was never a, a moment. I had such conviction about it. You know, it was, as I sort of said, a, a bolt from the blue and a real compulsion to tell this story and I can't I can't really explain that I just felt that the leprosy was very misunderstood and I wanted to correct that and give people with leprosy a, a sort of more positive image if you like so no I I mean I'm glad to say and it's been the same with all the books I've written since that I have I don't have a hundred ideas at once. I don't even have two in my head and which one shall I do or this one or that one. I only ever have one idea at a time that fills me with such sort of fire that it it kind of fuels the, you know, the rocket really. And I've always said if I didn't have an idea that made me feel like that, I wouldn't write another book which each time is sort of not being what my publisher wants to hear, but I can't write a book half-heartedly. So I just had this kind of desire, this compulsion. It was, I mean, I don't like to kind of over-egg that um, 
kind of analogy with having a child, because obviously that as an analogy, it's very flawed. But I felt like I was pregnant, you know, in a way. I haven't thought of this before I'm talking to you now, but it's coming to me really, that I felt the idea was growing inside me and that baby was going to come out, you know, as it did. So, no, I can't say I ever, ever had any big doubts about it. Mm. I mean, it never occurred to me that it would be published anywhere but the UK. I mean, that was another kind of, I didn't even want that or need that. And the advance paid for it was, you know, pretty small. And I had no great expectations of it being widely read or a bestseller or anything. I just knew I wanted to write it and um, to, you know, just hold a book in my hands. I love that you're led by your passion and you continue to be. We're going to turn to your latest book, The Figuring, in a moment. I just have one quick question. This is just out of slight nosiness. How many agents had you submitted to before you got picked up? Was it a small number, large number? To three, because actually there aren't that many. There are a lot more publishers than there are agents. So they almost are the, the tougher nut to crack, if you like. And having an agent, I believe, is very important because right. absolutely, yeah, they're your kind of interface with the world. And the ideal agent is somebody who, you know, is also a friend, as indeed, you know, my my agent was. So yeah, no, agents are are really important. They almost feel like a member of your family. Right. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to now turn to the writing and researching for your latest book, The Figurine. And it's a story of Helena, whose grandfather was a general in the Greek dictatorship, and she inherits her grandparents' flat. And she starts discovering these valuable objects in the flat and all these antiquities. And she begins to understand even more so the darker side of the history that she's from. And understands why her grandfather came to acquire these. And she starts to explore her heritage and fight for justice. You talk about a burning passion for the novels that you write. What was the burning inspiration for this book for you? Well, it really is a very sort of central fact of the book, which is that valuable, very ancient antiquities get stolen and that there is this huge traffic in them. And I was probably like most people, completely unaware. You know, we all know about drug trafficking and gun trafficking and people trafficking. They're kind of relatively high profile. But the trafficking of antiquities actually quite often travels along the same line of sort of being smuggled from one country to another. And the same people quite often, you know, at the end, the, the sort of the ones who make all the money, you know, launder money through these antiquities. And I I just felt a real sense of anger that there are people who basically take these things, not, I mean, they are valuable in a monetary sense, but they're also valuable in a cultural sense. So when something disappears from an archaeological dig before the archaeologists have got there and gets smuggled out of the country and quite often ends up in a private collection of some incredibly wealthy person abroad, they're sort of depriving the rest of us of understanding you know, where we come from, 
you know, we're all, I mean, most of us, and I'm sure everybody watching this podcast, you know, has learned a great deal from, you know, going to museums, looking at where we've come from, in a way, seeing ourselves in a very kind of bigger context, you know, and feeling that sort of thrill and perhaps a bit of humility about the fact that we don't produce anything more beautiful now than perhaps they did three, four, five thousand years ago. And we see ourselves as a sort of in this longer timeline. So anyway, I went on an archaeological dig and this was, you know, one of the big discussions and the big themes among the people that I spent that time with, you know, being missing. And so their work is never really complete. You know, they can't understand a particular civilization if a great number of its um, artifacts have just been, you know, stolen. So, yeah, and it happens on an enormous scale. So that was, you know, when I discovered that, I thought this is a this is a story I really want to write about. And I'm curious for this one in particular, you know, exploring the ethics of travelers and taking relics or not taking relics. When you have a point of view, something you want to share, something, a belief, something you want to change in the world, but you also have a story to tell. I'm curious how you find that balance and how do you know if you're swaying one way or the other? What's, do you have any, any measuring sticks that you go by or how do you keep yourself honest? Yeah, well... Your vehicle or my vehicle is always the fictional character. So that fictional character isn't necessarily, it's not autobiography, it's not your own voice in a way, but she can, he or she can express things that you think. So I think in this novel, perhaps more than in any other, the protagonist sort of does express my views. So Yeah, I think with other characters in previous books, they might have been a little bit more ambivalent and might get caught up in situations against their will. I mean, one of my books, I had a character who was sort of obliged to fight for the communist army in the Greek Civil War and made to perpetrate certain atrocities, which she then spends the rest of her life regretting. So you know, that was showing the ambiguity of, you know, civil war and and politics. But I think that's what characters do for you. They carry your ideas and maybe go off, you know, up a, a sort of tangent, off in a tangent in their own lives and maybe get corrupted or change their minds. But no, I think in this in this novel, the young woman is, she conveys my own feelings about you know theft and trafficking and obviously also politically her reaction to understanding her grandfather's role in history because he's a very right-wing sort of bigotedly right-wing army general who is you know set on imprisoning everybody who doesn't agree with the the dictatorship i.e. the right-wing leadership of the country. So it never occurs to me in my writing to be right-wing or fascist. I do veer more towards the left. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's very hidden where my beliefs lie. 
Right. I'm curious about character development. And this is one of the things with all of your books. If you read the comments, people say how much they love the characters or how much how fascinating they find them. And what does character development look like for you when you're starting a book, either before writing, during the writing? Maybe we can use Helena as an example, if that feels right. How do you understand her? Gosh, well, usually the protagonist is the first person I meet, and she's going to be the character that drives the whole narrative forward. I mean, I'm not comparing myself with Tolstoy, but if you think about war and peace, you know, there are a few who you're almost equally interested in or or some main character and then many other main characters. But I think because I've got a much smaller brain than Tolstoy, really, I'm, I'm usually preoccupied with one central figure. So Helena didn't arrive fully formed. In fact, for quite a long time, I knew there was something wrong with her. And very often, what is kind of slightly stalls you with a character or stalls me is having the name. Not She didn't have the right name, which sounds, it's both a very small thing, but it, for me, it's a very big thing. And once she has the right name, I really get a great sense of her. So she was very much up and running. A lot of her actually does reflect how I was as a young woman, as a teenager. And I think, you know, actually, this is my first book where a little bit more has been set in Britain than in other books. So the familiar territory of the 60s and the 70s, you know, for me was, you know, very, I enjoyed writing about it because I absolutely know how those two decades felt to be in this country. So, you know, that was a pleasure really for me writing about those little autobiographical touches of her life. And then having a, actually creating a character through whom you are going to see this Greek city of Athens and learn more about it as time goes on it was very helpful to have her as an eight-year-old going there very naively and sort of observing and everything being so strange and so alien and in a way so kind of exotic and exciting compared with the place that she's come from, a small town in England, and suddenly she's in the capital city of Greece in Athens. And it's all so fast and noisy and colourful and full of difference. And somehow taking her from one place to another and showing her reactions, that helps you develop a character. She's not just planted in Athens and growing up there. One of the most significant things about Helena that made me really visualise her, because I really liked almost in my mind, you know, if I could paint, I could paint Helena, is that she has this very wild, deep red hair, very wavy and frizzy. And this hair sort of is quite a defining characteristic for her. So yeah, you have to know what they look like, or I have to have a very strong idea of what they're physically like, even if I don't always describe that detail to the reader 
and the same with the other characters that come a bit later on. And sometimes they literally walk in. I mean, characters do just appear. And that is the most magical and exciting thing about writing fiction. I don't start with a dramatis personae and then piece them together and make them do things. Some of them literally do appear. And one of them really was her kind of so-called uncle. And some of the others are the, the policemen that we meet towards the end of the story who they just walked in and um, I got very carried away with those two policemen. And, you know, they're quite comic characters. And it is, although it's quite, you know, like all my books, has quite a dark core as a writer. And I'm sure everyone watching and listening will will agree. You have to have some variety. You know, you, you can't have people either being goodies or baddies. Those two policemen are, are sort of very flawed. You know, I, th- I think they're I'm most proud of them probably more than anyone I've ever written, and I might even pick them up for another story. I found them very good company. (laughs) And again, physical characteristics do define for me who they are. I love that. I love the complexity of their characters. Now, I'd love to talk about your sense of place. Really, reading the figurine, I could see just how much you loved Greece and you really do take us through Helena's experience of these various locations in Athens, Amos, and elsewhere. And it really occurred to me how evocative your scenes were, how vivid they were. You really made us feel as they were right there with you. And I was curious about how you think about writing scenes. I wondered if you're seeing the scene in your mind first and then trying to describe it, or are you just writing down the bare bones of maybe the dialogue and the plot and then layering in detail later? Is there anything you can share? Very much the way round that I do it is that I'm I'm in the place first, and then it's almost like I'm watching somebody walk into that place and then make their way through it or meet somebody there. Place is very important to me, and it's a character. You know, my the earliest book that ever had any impact on me at all was Wuthering Heights. You know, the name of the book is this place that really affects the characters who live there, how they behave, what kind of is in their makeup, you know, and the, the weather there and the, the climate and the food and the, the feeling of the sort of flagstone floors. I'm sure everybody's read Wuthering Heights. And I think that even from teenage onwards, I love books that are about a place, you know, where place really matters. I think that's probably why I can't read science fiction. I started trying to read one the other day just out of interest, and the place didn't mean anything to me. I want to connect with a real place and the weather and, you know, whether it's a smart place or a down-at-heel place or a the sea is there or yeah so no I definitely think about my place and there's a lot you know and, and obviously with Athens I I know it extremely well so you know when I'm in Kolonaiki in my head I can really be there in my head and if I'm in 
somewhere like Exarchia, which is a actually very near Kolonaiki, but socially the complete opposite. You know, I can be there. I know what these places smell like. And again, that's one of the great pleasures for me. I'm not, I'm sound makes me sound lazy, but those are the bits that I don't find very difficult because I generally write about a place that I I really sort of lived and breathed. And why we'll never write a book set on a sort of, I don't know, space station in outer galaxy. <laughs> I'm curious if we were to to see you in a place absorbing the sounds, the smells, what would we see? What would it look like? Are you there with your notebook? Are you writing notes? Are you just absorbing it and then later going back and describing what you saw? You're taking photos. Give us a peek. What does it look like? You'd see a woman generally sitting in a cafe. There's a lot of that that goes on. I don't tend to write down too much while I'm there because people are always a bit curious about you if you're sitting with a notebook. The most useful time is when you're with a friend. And I, the first few books, I used my mother a lot with this because she used to come on some of my research trips. And I'd always sort of be pretending to take a picture of her like she's here, but actually I'd be taking a picture of somebody over there. So I had a lot of, you know, really probably rather rudely and indiscreetly taken pictures of other people. But I found those, you know, if I saw a particularly, you know, in Greece, you know, a really good face, certainly in my first book, many of my characters are based on the faces of actual people. That was the starting point. So I come home and this is, you know, back in, um, you know, early 21st century, we were still developing photographs. And, you know, I had whole boards, cork boards. For every novel, I usually have one of those plastered with pictures or, I don't know, something torn out of a magazine that I like the type, you know, something that gives me atmosphere. So, yeah, lots of photographs. Lots of eavesdropping and observing. So I'm more likely to be pretending to read than actually making notes. And the other thing, actually, a really good way of making notes these days discreetly is now that time has moved on is, you know, pretend that you're sending a very long text to somebody and actually you're writing an email to yourself that says, you know, man with his collar turned up and, you know, very tall and a very small friend with, I don't know, handlebars, you know, just things that jog your memory about what people look like. I love this discreet spying on the world as it goes by. It sounds like a wonderful vacation. <laughs> did your mother know that she was part of your scheme to not actually take photos of her? Actually, yes, she did eventually, because when the pictures came out, she said, that's really odd, you know, you, there are no pictures of me. They're all these sort of old shepherds and, you know, <laughs> goat herds. So, no, um, she did. She did. Yeah. Um, now, Victoria, we read that your process for writing includes the researching, which we've spoken a little bit about, reading, and then writing a synopsis, which you share with your agent and editor. And I'm curious about why you write a synopsis before you start writing the book. Hmm. Well, by the stage that I write a synopsis, I've usually, because my books have a 
historical roughly start and end dates with certain kind of date posts in them that I can't move from. You know, for example, in this one, the dictatorship and the end of the dictatorship and a couple of other particular moments that are events. So I'd like to know roughly where I'm going. And I think in writing a synopsis, it tells me what this book is really about. Because I think even before I start writing or sharing it with anybody, even if at the beginning it's a bit difficult and I'm honing it down, I want to be able to say, this book is about X. And if I just sort of started writing without having a sense of the shape and the plot, I think I'd go really off the rails. But needless to say, the end result often differs a little bit from the synopsis. Because when you then start the writing process, as I say, a new ca- you know, a character will walk in that you didn't expect, or somebody falls in love with somebody that wasn't there in your mind at the beginning. So it's a structure, it's a synopsis, but I think of it more as a, a loose structure that can be sort of slightly, you know. That makes sense. Like a scaffolding, movable. Scaffolding, that's a really good way of describing it. Yeah, absolutely that. Yeah. So you have the synopsis, you've run it by your agent and the editor. Now it's time to write. Before you actually start writing, do you outline in any more detail? Do you go to a chapter by chapter level or even in this case, the figurine is four acts. Did you know what was roughly going to happen in four acts? Well, if I say I did, and then I look at the synopsis, I realised that, you know, a lot of things were added in. But the basic flow of it, when we meet the character, actually, we initially, we didn't meet her when she was eight years old. That was something that kind of came to me, that we needed to see her as a, a very naive child. And I think I, now I'm thinking about how it evolved, I needed to do a lot of work that I hadn't anticipated on resolving the end and the actual mechanics of how we get to the arrest of the the criminals. So that was all much more of a development than I'd had in the first synopsis. So, yeah, but in fact, in terms of writing... Once I've done the synopsis, I think now's the time to get some words on the page and to get, because it's very different structuring a story, or for me anyway, and actually writing a chapter, you know, in terms of where your imagination, letting your imagination go. So, you know, that's the bit that I love doing. So it's almost the reward for having done all the research and the synopsis and now I can actually start you know watching that word count mount up which is always horribly thrilling <laughs> and I usually start for some reason um I only ever write in pencil these particular pencils which I just love available in Ryman's and I because they have a rubber on as well. So you've always got a rubber. And I always start chapters by hand for some reason. I like to kind of just see handwriting on a page. And then when I feel 
I've kind of warmed up, then I type that up and carry on with the, you know, typing. So it's a bit of a quirky thing, but I just love, I like the feeling of a pencil on paper. I couldn't write the whole book like that, but it it just gives me a little bit more time because I write slower by hand than I do typing. I can type incredibly fast, but I just feel once I've got that beginning of a chapter, then I'm allowed to speed up. What does a good day of writing look like for you? Whether it's pages or typing it up, what does a good day look like? Well, a good day and a bad day have to look the same because I don't wait until I feel like writing or I go, oh, I'm inspired today. I just sit down at my desk at nine. Coffee, very important. Nine o'clock at my desk or in a library where I work a lot in London, just because it's slightly less likely to drive you insane being on your own all day, which is, you know, a real possibility for, I think, lots of writers. It's very, very lonely. So I often go to the London Library where there are lots of other writers quietly sitting at desks and you it's very silent but you just don't feel alone write for a few hours maybe you know till my stomach drives me to a cafe very light lunch because you can't fall asleep in the afternoon and then usually stop at about five or six and try not to work in the evenings but towards the end of a writing when you're meeting a deadline, I quite often break that. And exercise, which I think is extremely important for anybody who's a writer, because you spend so much time sitting really quite static. So it's very important to walk or run or do something physical. Otherwise, I think you're not actually tired enough to sleep. So, yeah, ex- I do regard exercise as being a vital part of a writer's life. Mm. What was the most challenging moment in writing this book, The Figurine? Was I challenged? It probably was the synopsis because it does have this slightly crime element to it, you know, which I had to really work hard to make it real. And I think that probably was, it was the the intricacies of, you know, catching your criminal, which was, you know, the first time I've done that. But apart from that, there was a lot of a lot of pleasure involved with writing the figurine. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. I think this is one of the commonalities. I don't know, Pearl, if you've noticed this, is that the more books someone is in, the less maybe struggles there are because you're just seeing it as a, this is your job, is to write this book. And you're kind of putting one foot after the other. At least that's my reflection here, is that you've kind of crossed the threshold of professional who shows up and persists regardless. Yeah, I mean, I think actually the research is often where I have the biggest struggles rather than the actual writing because quite often some of it is pretty awful. You know, the book that I wrote set in Cyprus where I had to read about various massacres you know, committed by both sides, and the same with those who are loved, which was about the Greek Civil War. So, yeah, from time to time, that's the emotionally tough bit, is actually reading about 
people's real struggles, which I'm then going to use, but, you know, pay respect to what people have gone through whilst making it a fictional context. So, yeah, I would say the research is often the the bit that is the the uphill bit for me and definitely emotionally the uphill bit. Do you have a sense, Victoria, on how long it takes you to write each book? And are you happy for you are you happy for it to take as long as it takes? Or do you give yourself a deadline when you begin? Yeah, I do have a deadline and generally they're three years. I mean that seems to be the rhythm for me. So when a, the figurine, for example, came out in September in the UK. And then for at least three or four months, I'm promoting. So that kind of eats up a little bit of the following year, by which time, you know, I've usually formed an idea or had an idea or something's come to me. And then at least a year, two years of research, and then the actual writing of it generally takes about a year, the solid writing process. Because if I'm writing generally six days a week for many hours a day, you know, I expect myself to be able to write, you know, a whole book in a year, the actual putting it together. And if it takes any, takes me, again, I can only ever talk about myself. I don't really, everybody is different. But if I don't write it fairly fast, the momentum of the story goes, you know, people who take 10 years to write a novel, I think, well, how can you remember what happened at the beginning? You know, it needs to feel like, you know, there is an arc, a narrative. And I know if I took 10 years to do the writing, I would lose the momentum. I've got to feel that the desire to tell a story where you're wanting people to turn the pages and to keep going and wanting to know what happens next I think some of that has to come from you being fairly full of energy to write it. And I, I hope that kind of then translates to the reader. I mean, if it's a very sort of elegiac book without a strong plot or a very literary book with a lot more, I don't know, verbal complexity, that might be quite different. But I think of myself as a storyteller. You know, for me, if somebody says, are you, which would you hang, you know, on a, or put on a badge? I don't really know what being a novelist means. It it encompasses so much, but I think I see myself as a storyteller. I identify with that word. Mm, That's beautiful. Just a quick time check from us. So we probably have maybe two more questions from Parl and I, and then we will turn it over to you. So if you have a question at all, about anything we've talked about or haven't talked about for Victoria, now's the time to put it into the chat. And in a few minutes, we'll give you a chance to ask it. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterssalon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. 
we read that you have an 80 page rule. So this is riffing off of, uh, you know, spending so much time to do the research and the writing. And your 80 page rule is that if you're bored with a book at that stage, I give it away. How many books are in that graveyard? Wow. Well, it's not a graveyard. It's the charity. (laughs) And then they go into somebody else's library. Obviously, I'm talking about novels here. I'm not talking about the, the big tomes that I might have to read for research. I just accept that, you know, reading about, you know, chemical aspects of archaeology, that might not really be a page turner. But I, you know, for this book, I had to read it. So, yes, I mean, it's about story for me. If I'm not grabbed by a story after 80 pages, which is probably an hour or two of my time, and there's another, let's say, 300 pages of that book to go. I mean, that that might be, you know, in a busy week, a whole week of my life in reading for a week. And there are only 52 weeks of the year. And I don't feel obliged to carry on if I'm not gripped. And I don't see why anybody would. I mean, I don't feel guilty about it, particularly if I've bought a book even. You know, then I've contributed to the economy. The author's got some money, the bookseller, and then someone else can enjoy it. But no, it's definitely 80 pages, sometimes less. And I'm curious how, if you do apply that to your own books, then are you to make sure that your books are interesting? Are you reading through it? How, yeah, I'm just curious how you're you're judging that for your books. I have occasionally, if I've been in a bookshop and seen somebody buying one of my books, I've actually said to them, "If you don't like it or it bores you, I'll give you your money back." And they stand there going, thinking I'm a complete lunatic. But I, you know, I really do mean it. I think to bore your reader is, you know, one of the, it's probably the main deadly sin for a writer. I think, gosh, the first, The Island was made into a television series. In fact, three of my novels have been made into TV series. And I think very oddly, that has slightly influenced, at least I hope in a positive way, influenced how I write because when you're writing a TV thing with multi-episodes you have to end each episode not necessarily on a kind of knife edge but definitely on a cliffhanger because people will want you know you want people to turn on the following week or the following day you know you've got to really have a strong ending so I always try to make sure that my chapter endings have something that will make people think, oh, I want to know what happens next. And actually, I think chapters are mostly useful because a lot of us read in bed and you think, oh, I'll read a couple of chapters. And you you want to be told in a way where to cut off. You know, you can cut off here or you read another chapter. It's somehow annoying if you read only half a chapter and fall asleep. So no, I mean I hope that chapter endings mean that people want to read the next one. Curious, Victoria, you've had so much praise and accolades for your work. I imagine you've had critics as well. How do you deal with both criticism and praise? What's your attitude towards it? Well, my attitude is that criticism is much more useful than praise, really. It's lovely to have 
nice reviews and kind of feel very elated and lovely. But if somebody says something negative, initially you go, how dare they? You know, it's a sort of, it really upsets you. (laughs) But it's always from, you know, because most book reviewers are very clever, literary people. And they're doing this thing as a, you know, for a living. And there are many people that would like to do that job. So, you know, they often are very, you know, really brainy, clever people. So, yeah, I read it and go, how dare they? And then an hour later, you read it again. And I always, I mean, I'm lucky I haven't had many sort of horrible reviews, but I always learn from them. And the one that I particularly remember and and has really lived with me was for The Return, which was the book set during the Spanish Civil War. And the reviewer said something like, um, made a reference to this sort of plodding uh, sort of narration of of the history of the time. It was like a school textbook. And I thought, gosh, yes, I could, I kind of looked back at the novel and I thought, yeah, I know what they mean. But it made me for the next book, it made me absolutely determined not to fall into that trap. And um, I work much harder on kind of leaving the history slightly more in the background. It's a great attitude to have. Criticism is useful. It is, I'm afraid. (laughs) One final question from us. So at the salon here, we like to talk about the mountaintop, the thing that we're looking at in the distance that we can see with our career and our writing. I'm curious what that is for you right now. What mountaintop is out there in the distance that you're you're walking toward, if there is one? Oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask this, and I I wasn't really sure what it was. And a perfectly fine answer is just to write more books as well. I mean, to keep going. I mean, I'm theoretically this is a job that you can do until you're 110 or however long you live so yes to keep going I think one day I would like to write a really short book because I think shorter books are probably harder you know some of the Julian Barnes's later novels um, have been really quite short but they're like a huge book or something massively sort of wise and wonderful but it didn't take very long to tell the story. So yeah, my ambition is to write a short book. (laughs) Love it. Will you keep writing about Greece, you think? I think so. I mean, I know a lot about it and I love it and I'm never short of ideas and extraordinary impressions of kind of slightly bizarre things I find in Greece. Oh, well, this is beautiful, Victoria. And we do recommend everyone picking up the figurine. It's out. Victoria, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending time with us. This has been so interesting. And wow, what a career you've had. And it sounds like you have many, many more books in you, maybe short ones next time or in the future. (laughs) A novella. (laughs) A novella. Any final words for us as we go forth and, and write? Gosh, well, the main thing is to enjoy it. It should be a real pleasure, even if you're writing from some place of pain or heartache because a lot of writing I think people who've lived very happy kind of uneventful lives probably might not have too many stories they want to tell 
but the actual process of getting words on a page and looking back at them and shaping them and, you know, the joy of writing a sentence that you're happy with, there can't be many things more satisfying. And then, you know, sharing them with the world. And I hope everybody listening is getting the opportunity to do that. Thank you. That's a lovely note. Well, thank you, Victoria. Beautiful, beautiful words. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Victoria, for your time. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm -hmm.